I'd like to take a few moments to consider three truths of the Incarnation. The, the birth narratives of Jesus in Matthew and Luke are so rich, so many things can grab our attention. The inn, the star, the wise men. We read Luke's account this evening. In it, I want to look at three things. We could have picked a dozen things um, that you can cherish in your heart, that can comfort and encourage you this Christmas Eve. And I'd like to begin by considering the first in the Christmas narrative. In Luke chapter 2, in the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus, we see that our God is mighty. We see that our God is mighty. Luke, in keeping with his research and historicity of his account, locks the events in a specific time, place, and year. In the days when Luke wrote this, that would invite verification. And we read about how in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered. And there's a contrast here, because the mightiest man on earth, Caesar Augustus, is flexing his muscles. I'm sure it was an inconvenience and a frustration and a difficulty for all men everywhere to move across the world at the time known to go to where they were born. And yet he did this, presumably in part to flex his muscles, to to show his empire who was emperor. And this human emperor, we know reading the text, is fulfilling the divine purposes of God. Not that there's any reason to think that Caesar Augustus intended to do this thing. In all likelihood, he intended to show his power, his majesty, his might. And yet we see in this birth narrative the sovereignty of our God. The rulers of this world, the kings, are nothing before him. They accomplish his purposes. Our God says in Isaiah 40, 15, Behold, the nations like a drop from a bucket are accounted as dust on the scales. Or Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God accomplishes his purpose in spite of wicked rulers. We live in a world with many tensions, many divisions politically, You can take comfort this Christmas that God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished by or in spite of them. Whether the people holding office are those you voted for, those you approve, disapprove, matters not. The God who orchestrated the birth of his son, according to prophecy, the God who predicted it hundreds of years beforehand in Micah 5.2, naming the town, disambiguating which Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We, we see the irony in a human ruler trying to show his might. He accomplishes God's purpose and prediction perfectly into the letter. We see the mighty power of our God harmonizing his purposes, working in and through human rulers 
Take, take comfort. God can do the same today. He will accomplish all of his purposes. Second, also I think in contrast to, to Caesar Augustus, is that our Savior is humble. The first thing we saw, our God is mighty. Second, our Savior is humble. Jesus said plainly, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And I think this census in part is that. Caesar Augustus has the clout and the power. What's the point of having it if you don't make use of it? If you don't remind people every so often who's in charge? In contrast to that, the king of kings is born in a manger. The one who would deserve every king, every courtier, every official, every trumpet, every angel in attendance is is born attended to some animals, a peasant family, and some shepherds show up later. And, And in this, we can take comfort because our savior is Humble. He's approachable. God, God sent his son that we might draw near to him. And Jesus echoes and speaks of this humility and meekness in his life and ministry. Where he asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. Where he dined with tax collectors and sinners. And he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If God had not humbled himself, if he had demanded we rise to his level, we we would have no hope. Um, Someone needed to bridge the gap and it could not be us. And it the incarnation, when we, when we look to these glorious truths in the Bible, we see the humility, the lowliness, the obedience of the Son in love on our behalf, entering into our suffering, feeling pain for the first time in eternity, being helpless, needing someone to change him, burp him potentially, being a child, a baby. We see the humility of our Savior, and we're encouraged to draw near. This is, of course, one of the great reasons God in the resurrection exalts the Lord Jesus. Let me read Philippians 2 to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the incarnation is actually the first step in the humbling of the Son of God. He takes on weakness, he takes on need, he takes on hunger, he takes on tiredness, he takes on suffering. But as he grows, he will take on shame and the reproach of men, and ultimately he will take on our sins on the cross. The beginning of that downward movement of humility and humiliation begins here, radically turns at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. And so when we, when we look to this account, we, we, we are reminded that our Savior is humble. We can draw near him. He does not send away any who would come to him. We, we see his love and his nearness to those who would have him.
Third, third point, our shepherd is good. Now, much is made of the fact that God, in celebrating the birth of his son, had shepherds attend. And much is made of the fact that shepherds are some of the lowest caste in society. This is true. But I think it is also notable that it was shepherds and not others of low position. He could have had lepers come. Jesus ministered with them later in his earthly ministry, showing again his humility, his his willingness to reach out and touch the untouchable, the unlovable. But God didn't send lepers. He sent shepherds. And I I think there's a, a reason for this. We know through progressive revelation in Scripture, the Lord Jesus is the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. He's a shepherd king, like David, his father before him. And I, and I think it kind of fitting that even as angels, terrifying angels, whatever you see on cards, don't do them justice. The first thing angels always say is don't be afraid. There's a reason for that. Angels appear to the shepherds, and the shepherds go and witness the birth. Because after all, our God has likened himself to a shepherd. Who can forget Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But more to the point, we were told in God's word that his coming Messiah, his anointed one, would shepherd his flock. In Ezekiel 34, God is angry at the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. They they failed and neglected their task. And he writes this, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will seek for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of troubles and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own lands and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. So our God has likened himself to a shepherd. He shepherds his people. He seeks his lost flock. And ultimately he does this in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rescue mission has begun at the incarnation. 30 or so years later, Jesus would say plainly in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The one who is the good shepherd, who would carry out God's searching 
and rescuing mission as the good shepherd. His birth is attended by shepherds. How fitting is that? How glorious is that? And ultimately, our shepherd not only seeks us and calls to us, but he he tells the story of, of what would a shepherd do who lost one sheep? He'd go and find it. But this good shepherd goes a step further. He lays down his life for his sheep. And in 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25, we read, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the birth of the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the one who is even now seeking for his flock. His birth is attended to by shepherds in the Father's good pleasure. How, how glorious and fitting is that. So this evening, as you, as you go home, celebrate with your families, as you enter into Christmas Day, I'd remind you that of the many things we could look at in the birth account, we see that our God is mighty. He's mighty over human history. He's not frustrated by wicked rulers. He's not thwarted by their designs. They become hapless um, servants of his, carrying out his will, accomplishing his purposes. As he reigns over all. Second, be reminded that our Savior is humble. You are not too Wicked for him, too low for him, too weak for him. However, many are too wise, too rich, and too strong. If you would have Jesus, no one will turn you away. If you will turn to him in faith. And that humility, that meekness is evidenced in so many areas of his life, but no less than in the occasion of his birth. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. And then remember the presence of the shepherds. How fitting it is that the one who would carry out God's shepherding mission, who would seek out the lost, who would bind them up, who would heal them, who would feed them, who would cause them to lie down in good pastures, is attended to by shepherds rejoicing and glorifying God. The birth of our Lord is so much more, but it is at least these three things. Let's prepare now to sing our closing song, Silent Night.